And now, ladies and gentlemen, New Horizons, the mind and body connection with Dr. Keisha Ross. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Horizon, mind and body connection on Intentional Talk Radio Network. I'm your host, Dr. Keisha Ross. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Marva Robinson. Before we get into it, please let me set the stage and tell you a bit about Dr. Robinson. Dr. Robinson is a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in St. Louis, Missouri. She completed her master's and doctoral studies in clinical psychology at Nova Southeastern University, where she graduated with a specialization in forensics and a focus in child, adolescent, and family psychology. Dr. Robinson Curley is a past president of the Association of Black Psychologists, an organization focused on addressing the mental health needs of people of the African diaspora. She also works with many organizations in terms of violence, uh, gun violence and de-escalation. Dr. Robinson also does great work in the community. Her workshops have been uh through the Missouri Psych Association, Psychiatric Association, Washington University, and many other places. She also works with veterans uh, full-time and is a uh, adjunct professor at Webster University. And she's a repeat guest on MSNBC and NPR, sharing her role and her insight doing clinical community work during the Ferguson turmoil. We are very happy to have you here today, Dr. Robinson. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing good. So before we get into it, let's have you give us a little bit of a 101 today. Today, we're going to be talking about healthcare healthcare disparities, both physical and mental health, with a bigger focus on the mental health piece. You're also going to talk about advocating what people can do for themselves within the community, as well as yeah. working with their healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. So why don't we start with a 101 and you tell us a bit about what are healthcare disparities? Okay. So when I'm talking about healthcare disparities, I'm talking about um, the gap in access and the gap in treatment outcomes when it comes to different communities. So you may have poor communities, communities that have more minorities that may have greater barriers when it comes to accessing healthcare or specialty care. And you also have tons of studies that show that the outcomes when they do have access are um, much more poorer outcomes when compared to white Americans. For example, one of the larger ones that's always a topic of discussion, specifically um, in the Midwest, is the death of uh, babies and mothers during childcare, right? And so, you know, mm-hmm. there's this this huge talk about why is it that one of the most happiest moments of your life, you're worried about if it may be a death sentence. So when I talk about healthcare disparities, that's what I'm talking about, that gap. Um, how can we make sure that everyone is treated the same way by their doctor and if how everyone can have the same access? So basically, as you said, just breaking it down, recap the gaps. So there isn't equity is what you're telling us. It, it is an equitable care, particularly between uh, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color communities, particularly with uh, white communities. You know, there's the old school saying, you know, white, white America catches a cold, <laughs> Black America catches pneumonia. The so flu, with, with the all pneumonia, this- The flu, the everything else. You the the exactly. everything. 
Right. And we see it happening with COVID, right? It definitely highlighted. It's not that we didn't know it was there, but COVID just broke down any kind of smoke screen that might have been there. It it totally disappeared. Absolutely. And and why you mentioned that, and this isn't just since the vaccine, because there's a lot of talk about, you know, the death rates and why it's higher. And then there's a whole thing about, you know, minorities not wanting to get vaccinated. We're talking pre-vaccination, right? So we're looking at um, access to even get tested in black yes. communities, you know, access, you know, to, to healthcare and treatment in, in, in hospital rooms. So yeah, definitely talking about all of that. Wonderful. So we have listeners have an understanding healthcare disparities. We're talking about equity gaps. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specific spa- factors such as social determinants that impact healthcare disparities? Okay. So Social determinants, I'm going to put them, um, I'm going to try to, the number one that pops up, of course, is race and ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. So the outcome and access to healthcare when you look at BIPOC communities versus white. So um, a Black person having access and and what their treatment looks like for hypertension versus someone who's white. Um, Another social determinant would be socioeconomic status, right? And so how much money you make can be an impact in multiple ways. Um, access to insurance, there's even discrimination um, in types of insurance, right? So if it is a government-funded plan versus a private insurance plan, what doctors you have access to in your network. So mm-hmm. socioeconomic status is, is another big one. Um, also level of education. Now, sometimes people don't know what questions to ask or that they have a right to ask questions. Um, so other determinants could be um, expressed disability. So those who may have physical handicaps or disabilities compared to those who don't. Um, uh, gender identity, uh, again, express disability and gender. So those are some of the social determinants uh, that stand out when we talk about disparities in healthcare treatment. Okay, so different groups, as you said, mm-hmm. race, ethnicity, uh, disability, gender I, identity, um, socioeconomic status. So all of those are individual areas, but now if we think intersectionally, now if we have an intersection of all of those areas, they become a challenge. And we know that many studies try to control for things like SES, but there have been many things that we hear, even like in the media, you talked about maternal mortality Mm -hmm. rates. There are many African American women, even though they may be in status, socioeconomic status or education, at high level, there's still uh, a challenge. And we've seen that even with um, Serena Williams, who spoke yes. out on, on her experience. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Yes, socioeconomic status. Sometimes people may think, oh, well, if you're rich enough or you have enough money, then that should maybe control for that. Yeah, well, un- unfortunately, your your wallet doesn't enter the room before your color. I mean, if we look at it that way, um, so And so that intersectionality definitely does play a difference if you are Black and poor and a female, right? And if you're coming um, from a community that has a lower SES or that has been redlined. So that in and of itself can cause a lot of issues and, and it stacks the barriers against you, right? And so that's not always the case, but the more barriers you have, the more difficult it becomes. And you're right, you know, you don't have to have all those beer stacks. Sometimes, like I said, the race will enter the room before you do. 
And if you have a doctor or provider who is not culturally competent or who has some bias, that can impact your healthcare treatment, regardless of how much money you have access to or regardless of the degree that you have. So you just said a couple of words there, cultural competence. So for those who are practitioners, they definitely should know and understand what that is. For listeners that may not be in the medical field, what is cultural competence and what should they know about that when they are meeting with their providers? So cultural competence is a phrase that we use to describe a, a, a provider's level of knowledge and expertise when working with different communities and different cultural groups. So um, a lot of medical research that is still being taught in medical schools today are research studies that are based solely on white populations. So how does that translate when you have someone who is Asian American in the room or someone who's Native American in the room, right? Mm-hmm. What, what does the research study say about that? And so it does place onus on individual providers and agencies to make sure that their providers are well trained to be able to work with and understand the data and healthcare facts on all communities. So their ability to know the facts, the cultural implications, and just their ability to know how to empathize and connect with the individual. Definitely. It's something you said there that's important is just recognizing that there is a European white Caucasian standard. So oftentimes when we are going into care, many things are based on that standard, even if we think about weight and BMI, right? There are different body types, there's different bone densities, but yet at the same time, that is the standard that is being used. Absolutely. Perfect example. Thank you, Dr. Ross. So you also mentioned something else, implicit bias. This is a buzz (laughs) now, right? I mean, not that it is a new notion, but in research, it's something that's talked about now. So can you tell us a little bit more about implicit bias and how that might impact uh, care with, yeah. with providers? So, you know, you've got your aversive bias, you know, the one that is just the the red nose on the face, like everybody can see it, hear it, touch it, feel it, recognize what that was. And then you have the more implicit bias, those assumptions that individuals have that they use to lead their judgment and recommendation to other people. For example, um, doctors who may see someone and walk in and may automatically assume that a condition is just based on their weight or their size and not take the chance to take a deeper look or make an assumption um, that an individual eats unhealthy foods and that's why they're suffering from diabetes versus taking a closer look at the underlying issues. So those implicit biases, you know, these little judgments that are used, that people Mm -hmm. use to help inform their initial opinions, that can be definitely harmful. Um, And and there's also positive stereotypes, right, that people have where they attribute positive things towards someone based on these preconceived notions that, you know, oh, this this couldn't be possible, right? But it's those, those little notions that can be life or death for the person sitting across from them. Exactly. So something might not be checked out or tested for because going Absolutely. in a positive stereotype route, but in the negative stereotype route, something still could be missed when yep. there is um, full testing. So 
recognizing again, like you said, it's unconscious. So people don't necessarily recognize that this is where it's important to for like providers to keep up with their like continuing education. So for listeners as consumers, you know, when you're seeing your doctors, whether it's primary care physicians, specialty or mental health professionals, you know, being aware in terms of their specialty areas and that they're keeping up on the literature and what is happening. So when you talk about stereotypes there, I also think about pain, pain medication. This is a big area that we see a a huge gap. I hear from patients all the time that they they come in, they're having significant pain, particularly if they're black or brown, and it's difficult for them to obtain pain medication, whereas sometimes their white counterparts, there may be written several scripts that may not be necessary. So that also can be problematic, too little or too much in terms of that. Could you speak to that a little? Yeah, you know, this whole notion, you know, and it it goes back to this whole, you know, the image of what criminals look like, of what drug dealers look like, or what drug seekers look like, right? Mm -hmm. This public assault and criminalizing Black and brown people. And so that carries over into providers. And so someone could be having a serious internal injury, a fracture, a break, or whatever have you, and have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they are, you know, in need of pain treatment. But we see that all the time where it's almost, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch individuals with these conditions, you know, have to jump through hoops and hurdles and drug screens and urine screens to get treatment for pain when it's not the same for their white counterparts, you know? And so, I think part of that is being able for the provider to recognize or see themselves or their family members and a person across from them. And when Mm -hmm. they can't, they treat them conservatively. Right. And so, yeah, that, that definitely is a huge one. You know, people living Mm -hmm. in chronic pain, you try to go the correct route to see your healthcare provider that doesn't work out. And so when you have people using alternative means to address pain, then it's, Oh, see, we can't help your pain because you're doing X, Y, and Z. And so it, it's it's a never-ending vicious cycle. It is. And and what you talked about there, it's those negative stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Again, not only in the drug-seeking sense of that stereotype, but we also, you know, there's a lot of literature and research out there that people believe the stereotypes that Black people can don't experience. Hot, they don't feel pain. Yep. Their skin is thicker. I mean, in all of these things that are not medically sound and they've done research and they have actually done research with fully fledged board certified doctors as well as residents who are in training. And it's amazing to see that there are those who believe that these stereotypes are true. Yeah, so, absolutely. Absolutely. So, that, you know, and especially, you know, if someone looks presentable, oh, they must not be in that much pain or, you know, oh, you know, you know, Black men can endure more or, you know, Black women and childbirth, you know, oh, it's just minor, you know, just that, that lack of empathy. And you're right. It's, it's definitely that that adds another layer of, of the discrimination. So all of that is going to, we're going to get into that very soon in terms of because this is happening, how do we advocate? But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit more about the pandemic and some of the disparities that we have seen in Black and Brown communities. You talked a little bit earlier about it. What have you experienced and seen in the work that you you are doing? Uh, So what I've seen, I'll talk about in two phases, 
pre-vaccination post, right? Um, pre-vaccination, um, individuals had a, a difficult time getting access to testing. Um, mm-hmm. A diff- almost n- no access to antibody testing. Um, or they would have to have nine out of 10 symptoms in order for their healthcare provider to request testing for them, right? And so the diagnosis was given later, hence the infection may have spread more. And then when a person is sick and maybe they only have a couple symptoms, getting in to get treatment was just almost non-existent. So we saw higher mortality rates when you looked at the proportion of the community size versus those that were um, dying by COVID-19. And so that was one layer of it. Um, You know, trying to help individuals find other ways of getting access to testing and access to care would often require them driving 10, 20 miles outside of their community to get access. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, or if you were to find one that was local, the long lines and the waits to get in. Um, going through your local healthcare departments was like a seven-day wait to get scheduled for testing. Could you imagine? Wow. Shortness of breath. You think you have COVID. Mm-hmm. You live in a household with maybe a grandparent. Yeah. And you have to wait seven days to find out if you do or not. So that was a huge problem. Um, what I've seen post-pandemic, uh, some initial barriers with access, again, to vaccination tools and treatments, masks hand sanitizers, uh, the vaccine rollout was a lot slower. Um, It was unfortunate to see that, um, and I think there was a study done about this based on the political affiliation of the state you live in, you could almost Mm. guess what the rollout plan looked like, Mm. right? So in large urban black and brown communities, the rollout was just slower. Um, So individuals were driving one, two, three hours outside of town to get access to vaccines were in rural communities where it wasn't heavily utilized. There was an abundance of vaccinations and open appointments. (laughs) Yes, it was amazing. I had patients who were telling me they were driving like an hour and a half to two hours. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. To be be vaccinated. So isn't that amazing? And what you're talking about now is more so like, yes, in urban areas, suburban areas. So as you said, rural had an abundance, but when we think also of indigenous people living mm-hmm. on tribal lands, it's very, it was very difficult also too for them absolutely. to have access to testing as well. So, Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think the rollout in providing education on the study of the vaccines was a bit slow. Um, not enough ownership and understanding the mistrust that a lot of BIPOC communities had and understanding that that mistrust is valid and it was earned. Uh-huh. Well justified. Well, well justified. Well justified and earned. And so I think because there was a slowness to pick up on that and explain that a little yeah. bit better, that resulted in some hesitancy. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've seen that things are starting to pick up more. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in the populations I've worked worked with, we've seen more of the BIPOC community being vaccinated um, compared to uh, their white counterparts. And so, you know, it's catching up. And do some great work by, you know, many uh, BIPOC providers, including yourself. You 
uh, authored a great handout in terms of uh, working with vaccine hesitancy and meeting patients where they are to validate and understand what is happening. So again, these disparities are not only historical, right? What has happened Mm -hmm. in the past is what's currently happening now in terms of the gaps, but we still have to recognize that foundation, that history is what has laid that suspicion, which is appropriate and adaptive uh, in many communities. So it's like, yeah, you got to tell us what was, you got to tell us what's going on. We need all the information. Exactly. And you can't get frustrated with a patient who says, Mm -hmm. I want to wait and see, right? Because the more irate or irritated the provider gets, it makes yes. you want to dig your heels in even more and say, well, wait a minute. Why are you insistent on me mm-hmm. getting this shot? And you have mm-hmm. yet to explain why I still yes. have this lower back pain for the past 18 months. And we don't even have a treatment plan for that, right? So we yes. have to take a step back and be able to say, yeah, yeah. you're right. Like Tuskegee wasn't like uh, centuries ago, right? Like, you no, know, not at the all. The rate for black mothers and babies, that is still a current issue, right? And so yes. when providers say, but that's not the same thing, you're comparing apples and oranges, that's to you. But when you're talking about a community who this mm-hmm. is the reality, it's not apples yes. and oranges, it's life and death. And so I need you to explain to me why this is important, why this is different, and then allow me the space and time to make my own decision. And I think we we have a unique perspective because we're psychologists. So we're coming from a psychological model versus a medical model. So medical model is usually, you know, treatment diagnosis and and boom, you have to have like, this is what you need to do. But psychology, we're there more so to listen, to have, you know, that safe space, validate and help people to come to that understanding. So I think it's also, we come from a different perspective than the medical model. So I had many patients that are like, no, Dr. Ross, I got to wait and see. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And, and what can you say to that? You, right. Can you really say, well, no, right. this is what, this is what you should do. I, I, I often encourage them to read the literature, the research. Mm-hmm. I would have things on hand that I would give to them so that they can read through it themselves. And also trying to highlight what our difference is now. So it doesn't mean that we are negating what has happened. Experimentation is very real. We know and understand it to be true. However, we are in a time where there's more access to some of the information. That's different. When we think about Tuskegee, a totally blind type of experiment in terms of you don't know what you're getting into is also a little bit different in that you can get information about the vaccine. Also, you have many um, BIPOC researchers and doctors that also have been a part of the project. So that has been, been helpful. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we also, as you talked about earlier, you know, there's cultural factors we have to be aware of, you know, within homes. So we have some families, you know, that they live multi-generational. So that Mm -hmm. was a big challenge in terms of if one person had COVID, then when they go home, many other people were infected. Absolutely. And again, when we come from a Eurocentric model that may be just, you know, individual traditional type of families in a a home that doesn't always fit where it's multi-generational. You have grandparents, you have other extended family that that is family living in the home. So these are the things as you talk about cultural competence that we need to be aware of. So when talking and meet as a consumer meeting with providers, sometimes, you know, educating them just in terms of 
your background and, and what your life looks like. Yes. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. You just made me think of something because when I would advocate for people to get testing, I'm like, look, okay, so they may only have one or two symptoms and to you, that's not a big deal. They should just isolate and give it a three or four more days. But we're talking about someone who can't isolate. They have a grandparent in the home who has a health condition. There are children in the home. Waiting two or three more days could be life or death to that grandparent. Do you want mm-hmm. the individual to have that on their conscience, right? So you have to engage the body to say, get out of your bubble, right? Not everyone lives in a home with multiple mm-hmm. extra guest bedrooms or a separate wing where they can exit and enter from mm-hmm. a, a separate entrance. That's not everyone's reality. And so sometimes right. it is about just advocating for your patient by educating their providers, right? Yes. It's more than do you have this symptom, yes or no, okay, then you don't, right? You've got to mm-hmm. dig deeper, right? Who else is impacted by this? And it's not your money to order the test for someone who needs it, right? So just order the test. <laughs> what you mentioned there, multicultural families, again, and even if there is enough wings in space, it's still a matter of there might be a closeness within the home, right? right. Because that is a part of, of the culture. So being aware of that. So the pandemic has definitely shown shown again the differences between the haves and the have-nots. When we yes. think about essential workers, people who don't have the opportunity to ride by themselves in the car to work, they have to take the bus, they have to take the train. So again, Mm -hmm. and then being in spaces where there may be many people, they don't have their own own office. So all of these were some of the challenges in the beginning that I don't think all providers were were keeping in mind. So that's that cultural competence piece that you are are speaking to. Exactly. And even the luxury to be able to work from home, right? Like there was some, Mm -hmm. you know, those that were needed could not just you know, open up a laptop and work from home. They were the essential workers required to go out, right? Overwhelmingly represented by those with the lower SES. And so there's more exposure just by way of the type of work you do. Exactly. And then with the pandemic too, just in terms of gender, women especially were hit hard as like the the caregiver. So happened to figure out that time when child's care was closed down, figuring out what do you do with your your children so not 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 easy time so because we know we have these gaps you've laid down the foundation of healthcare disparities some of the social determinants that lead into that now let's segue into shift into how do we advocate as a psychologist how do you advocate for your patients I advocate, so for the patients that I work with, I often, you know, my number one motto is I need to leverage whatever privilege I have whenever I can and it's appropriate. So that means using the alphabets behind my name and using my license to, you know, request things like FMLA when it's appropriate. If someone Mm -hmm. is caring for a family member who's very ill, um, you know, being able to do that, being able to call up the provider and ask certain questions that may, where the medical impacts the mental health, you know, number one thing, you know, like thyroid disease, right? Like I'll ask some patients who suffer from depression, you know, well, when's the last time you've had, you know, those levels checked? I've never had them checked. Well, you need to talk with your doctor about, you know, checking for these kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. helping them, you know, educate them about the questions to ask, but me being willing to ask those questions directly to the provider myself, being willing to help fill out whatever 
paperwork is necessary when it's applicable. Um, and again, just providing that that education uh, access yeah. to see, you know. So those are some of the ways I, I help to advocate. Wonderful. So as you said, paperwork, mm-hmm. FMLA, and as psychologists, we are in a unique situation too because we can help to encourage referrals to other places as as well. So if there's specialty care that is needed. And again, when working with BIPOC communities, there is a lot of, you know, when we think of the trifecta, right? Hypertension, Mm -hmm. high cholesterol, Mm -hmm. cardiovascular type of issues. So this Mm -hmm. is why this is the the mind and body connection because not recognizing it's chicken and egg, right? Sometimes the body is hurting because there's a mental health issue and sometimes working through the mental health issue. I have patients who, you know, they've done everything. They've done the MRIs, they've done the CAT scans, they've they've looked into everything because it's headache, everything is clear. So at that point now we know, okay, that's been ruled out. So this is likely... Some, this is a symptom that's due to the trauma. It's due to yeah. the depression. It's, it's the unresolved trauma that we still need to work through or gastric problems. People go through having so many issues gastrically uh, to find no yes. issues either. So really recognizing that physical symptoms can be indicative at times of mental health issues. It doesn't mean Absolutely. to not see your doctor. See your doctor, see your primary care physician. I encourage them to get panels run. Look at your vitamin D. Many people mm-hmm. suffer from vitamin D Yes, the yes. deficiency and particularly people of color and especially in North America and that impacts the immune system. So the opportunity to, you know, fight off infection, it becomes tougher with that. Yep. So those basic things also become ways to advocate taking regular vitamins and minerals because oftentimes there's a lot of medication right in the bi- okay. in the BIPOC community sometimes you see that pill case and it's all medicines and while we need to take medicine sometimes the body also needs you know just the minerals and vitamins to help, yeah. help build itself up. yeah yeah definitely in, in helping other people helping our community especially with um, taking a look into that mental health piece I know that stigma is there you, myself, and others, we, we live to fight another day to knock down that stereotype and that barrier. Yes. Mental yes. health is everything, right? I mean, it can be threaded within everything. So you're right, you know, sometimes helping to make that connection. Well, if you aren't mentally stable, you aren't motivated to keep on top of your medications, mm-hmm. to go out for a walk, to follow up with appointments. Right. Low motivation, low energy, those are symptoms of depression. So sometimes you have to have those real conversations. Yeah. Yes. And also keeping in mind that there is stigma in many communities, Asian community, Black community, Latin community, and it's more acceptable mm-hmm. to have physical symptoms, right? Because that means it's not a mental health issue. So even though there's a challenge in still caring for ourselves sometimes with medical conditions, it's still more acceptable than the mental health kind of issue. So the whole purpose of, you know, the mind-body connection is to recognize that mental health is health. So once we're taking care of our mind, we're taking care of of our body and and they're interconnected. Absolutely. It's all hand in hand. There you go. Yeah. So as we talk 
talk about communities of color. What are some ways that, you know, talking to listeners, what are things they can do to begin to advocate for their healthcare options? So we talked about a lot about what we do. So now what are the things that they can do? Okay. So um, I, number one is hold your doctors accountable, right? Yes. Just as they give you instructions of things to do, you have a right to ask questions of them and to have questions for them to hold them accountable. So, you know, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And so you are going to follow up on what, right? Take those notes. Um, I'd say one of the best ways you can hold your doctor accountable is to always request access to your progress notes. Now, that is a surefire way to make sure that they were listening to you while you were in that appointment and that they documented things appropriately. So I would say that communities of color, uh, you know, finding ways um, and increasing savviness with holding your doctors accountable. Those progress notes, follow up on their phone calls, um, also making sure that they are telling you what their plan is for you as well as what you plan to do to also help yourself. Oh, wonderful. Just uh, some recap with that. So hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yes. And <laughs> as you said, always request access to your progress notes. Now, mm-hmm. everyone listen, because it's amazing. I work with patients who did not recognize that they have rights and access to their product. Their yes. medical notes. I said, it's yes. your data. I said, it's, it's your life, your... It's your information. So you have a right to that. So it's important that for the listeners to recognize that because I don't think people do. So, and I encourage patients to like, if you forget what we talked about, you can access your notes. notes. See see what we talked about. Oh, I forgot what I was supposed to do or what we talked about. And then you can see, as you said, if there's gaps, well, I asked about so-and-so and and I didn't see that. Or they said that they were going to run so-and-so tests and and they didn't do that. So that definitely is a way to, um, keep providers accountable and many times and oftentimes with any medication or procedures I work to empower patients that ask questions and you ask questions until they explain it to an to you in a way you you can understand and there's a gap you know some doctors know how to talk to colleagues and may not necessarily (laughs) know how to talk to patients, you know, and, yeah. and not to say that it's a matter of that they wouldn't understand some things, but if it's a lot of, you know, jar medical jargons, sometimes it's like mm-hmm. breaking down. What does that yeah. mean? So I've had patients. I don't that get I, it. Yep. I don't so get it. I don't understand. Yep. Break that down for me. Explain mm-hmm. that a little bit more. So I have patients that will come and tell me like their medication was changed. I said, well, do you know why it was changed? No, they just changed it. I said, well, right. I, I encourage you to ask them, well, why did you change it from this? that you know what are the differences between this and that what what's the rationale for that absolutely you hit the nail on the head you know I tell my patients if you go out to dinner and in your mind you estimate you know you're going to spend x amount of money and your bill comes and you and you're spending two hundred dollars right you're going to ask for the receipt you want to check (laughs) to make sure that nothing else is there that's not supposed to be there or that what you requested was on there right and then you pay for that service. Same thing with going to see your doctor. You get a, you get billed for that, whether if your insurance pays for it 
or you've paid a premium or mm-hmm. whatever have you, you are paying for a service. Your note is your receipt. You get yeah. to see what was discussed and what you asked for is covered in that note and what the treatment plan will be. And we'll talk about treatment plans when we get into those three things, but it's, that's your receipt and you have a right to ask for it. Hold us accountable for providing the care and treatment that we say we are. Wonderful. And also keep in mind for consumers, while you have the right to your information, keeping in mind other people, you have to provide written consent if it's to go to a third party, because that's what is the patient doctor confidentiality. So when you share something with your doctor, unless there's some life-threatening reason of why they need to share that information, it should be kept private. And that's, you Absolutely. know, that's HIPAA law. So being aware of that too, that it shouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily be shared with anyone unless you give permission. And usually that is in, in some t- form of writing, some kind of consent form. Yep. Yep. Wonderful. So let's talk very even more specific, you know, are there other things, you know, steps that they can do to hold healthcare professionals accountable in addition to, you know, always, request access to progress no follow up on calls asking questions what are some other areas you would encourage so one of the first things i do when i'm working with patients on um, advocacy medical advocacy is i say get a medical journal you should have a notebook or a folder um it's better if it's one of those notebooks to have the um folder pockets inside of it like the ones from from school (laughs) Write down information. If you're having a side effect, write it down. If you don't feel well one day, write it down because when you do have that appointment, sometimes you forget about the things that happened a month, six months, four months ago. And so you forget to offer valid information to your doctor. So I say write it all down. Um, Write down which doctor you're asking these questions of. So when you go to this appointment, take your medical journal with you. Have your three questions you want to ask or whatever questions you need to ask outlined and make sure that you write down the answer the doctor gives you for those questions. Any progress notes you get, any lab work you do, put that all in your journal. Keep track of it all together. That way, if you have to go see a specialist or you refer to someone else, you have a collection of all of the records right there with you. And the side effects, because you want the person treating you to be as informed as possible. And you want to make sure that you're writing down the appropriate information, too. So I say keep a medical journal handy and keep all of your medical related information consolidated in one spot. Excellent. So you have your own medical care system going there. And it's true, right? You leave and it's like, oh, what did they say about that? Mm-hmm. Yep. I can't remember yeah. that. And, you know, and this is any stage of life because, you know, there might be the stereotype that only if you're older, you need to do that. If you're in an oh, older no. stage of life, but no, this is any stage yep. of life because the information comes and it may not fully encode yet. And then it's yep. not a clear understanding. And it's really important, especially if you also see a specialty care provider. So if you see an endocrinologist, because of thyroid disease or because of diabetes. If you're seeing orthopedic because of some hip or knee pain, if you're seeing a neurologist because of headaches or you know some other pain, you know 
keeping that in the medical journal because believe it or not, doctors don't always sit down and have these conference calls about patients, right? That would be ideal, but they don't. And so you want to be able to relay to your neurologist what the ortho told you, right? You know, wait a minute, before you prescribe me this, this doctor prescribed me these medications. Do these conflict with one another? So having all of that Mm -hmm. in one central place allows you to just be a more informed patient. Wonderful. So get your medical journal folder, three questions Mm -hmm. outlined, make sure you write down the answer, keep all of the results together. As you said, lab tests, procedures, any kind of results. So you have that and signing releases so that it's interdisciplinary, right? So everyone can be in contact with each other. To call this doctor's office so that you all are on the same page. I mean, that's not a far-fetched question to ask or an unreasonable um, expectation for you to want your providers to all be on the same page about how you're being treated. Mm-hmm. And, and it happens often, uh, interaction effective medicines. I just spoke with a patient last week that was feeling out of sorts, mm-hmm. you know, to the point of where, you know, the supervising managers is said that the patient didn't seem like themselves and almost wanted to have them tested for something. But keeping in mind, prescription medication can do this. And we're not necessarily talking opiate or anything along that line. We just mean general medications that can be interacting with each other can cause different kinds of side effects. Yes, absolutely. Which is another tip that I like to offer. Um, You can always ask if in your primary care office, if there is a pharmacist. And if there's not a pharmacist, whichever pharmacy you go to, you can ask to speak to the pharmacist and say, if you have concerns about medications, hey, I'm taking, you know, X, Y, and Z. I just want to make sure that there's no contraindication, meaning that this medicine won't have a negative reaction to this one. Um, doctors, yes, they do prescribe medications based on symptoms, but pharmacists, know um, how medications work, what they interact with, the strengths, the the dosaging, um, the brand name. So, you know, so pharmacists are really like the expert when it comes to the actual medication. So I said, you know, running things past a pharmacist can never be a bad idea. So you're basically saying if you know you're taking a a lot of medication, you should kind of become besties with with the pharmacist. (laughs) And sometimes it's like that, you know, that you come to pick up and they, they know right away something's new. Okay, let me take some minutes to talk with you about mm-hmm. what is going on. And if they don't share or offer it, as you said, by all means, you know, ask. Because it's important yep. that there's that level of self-advocacy. But it's interesting. What do you think are some of the reasons that people don't ask questions? Because there's a hierarchy in the relationship. When you walk in the room, the doctor's like, the doctor. And the patient's like, I'm just here to see you. Whatever the doctor says, they're the expert, right? And we we don't want to minimize the education expertise that doctors go through to get their education, right? But I think just by nature of the relationship, a doctor and a patient, that mm-hmm. it's assumed that they are the expert, they know all, and that who are we to question them, right? We don't have the same degree. And so I think that creates this relationship paradigm Mm -hmm. where people go in, they, you know, say, okay, okay, they take notes and they leave. But Mm -hmm. 
I always tell my patients, no one is a better expert on you than you. Than you. You live with you. You know your aches and pains. You know when something's not right. You know if you're not responding well to something. You know, a doctor is making an educated guess based Mm -hmm. on science and studies and on the population that they see, right? But you, you are the individual. And so if you don't ask that question, about something that feels off for you, they aren't going to think to answer it for you. So, you know, I just, yes, they are the expert on the medicine and science, but you come into the room with the expert expertise on you. Agreed. So that power differential. So this idea that, you know, we should just kind of acquiesce to whatever, you know, the doctor says, but it's important. You made a key point there that they're making an educated guess based on science Mm -hmm. studies and also the symptoms you give them. So it's not like you go in and they just start guessing like what's going on. That's the first question they ask. So what's going on? What what brings you in today? Well, I have a cough or I have a pain, what, whatever may be going on. And if that information isn't shared, then it becomes difficult for them to make a diagnosis. So that's where we talk about it should be a collaborative kind of approach. So even when you're, Mm -hmm. I educate about, I educate more so about shopping for therapists, but a lot of it could be applied also for shopping for medical doctor. Getting that level of trust, feeling Mm -hmm. that you are, feeling that you are heard. Like, do you feel small when you ask a question and, and they respond? Is there any, is it condescending in any way? Or do you feel like they hear you and they are you know, hearing where you're coming from. So that becomes a part of, of that advocacy as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and as psychologists, you know, I, I get that a lot of patients really are reluctant to ask us questions or to challenge what you may say because, you know, especially when you're bearing your soul to someone about your deepest, darkest secrets, you are in a vulnerable place and you may not think to yeah. want to challenge, but, you know... Ask those questions. You know, if your provider is offended or is upset by you taking an interest in your health care and wellness, then that's a problem, right? Because we mm-hmm. are a partner in your wellness. We are yeah. not the sole captives of your health care. So it, sh- it should be a collaborative process. Definitely. So that's important in when doing the the. Sh- shopping <laughs> in terms of, yep. of, of that type of work. Anything else that you would you would advise consumers as you are shopping yeah. for mental health therapists, whether it's primary care physician, any specialty kind of doctor? Yeah. Um, one of the things I do um, educate people about a term that's not used often is differential diagnoses. And so <laughs> I tell patients, whether if you're seeing a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a medical professional, you can always always ask, A, what is my diagnosis? What diagnosis are you giving me, right? Because a person shouldn't be billing you or providing care and treatment if they don't know what your diagnosis is, unless it's like the first couple of sessions and they're trying to sort things out, right? But you can ask, what is my diagnosis? And you can also, a good follow-up question is, what, what differential diagnoses did you consider? Differentials meaning Whenever we make a diagnosis, um, it's based on the symptoms that's presented. And Mm -hmm. so a symptom in and of itself is not a diagnosis, but it's a cluster of symptoms. Mm -hmm. So when we look at that, we come up with multiple diagnoses that could fit the picture. 
And so it's, you know, after we do more examining, more lab work, more testing, that we settle on one diagnosis. But before we settle on that one, we should have been considering others, right? You, you never want a provider who comes in and they know it all right off the bat. Oh, it's this. Well, wait a minute. Did you consider this? Did you consider that? You know, so you want to know what other things they considered and why they ruled those things out. And so that's the process that providers go through, which is called differential diagnosing, where if someone comes to me and they say they're tired a lot, they have low energy, it's hard for them to focus and concentrate, right? There's three different diagnoses that can pop up in my mind. So now I'm going to ask more questions so I can drill down to which diagnosis I'm going to give, right? That patient has a right to say, well, well, Dr. Robinson, what's my diagnosis? Oh, I went with an anxiety disorder. Well, what were your differentials? What, what else did you consider? I considered depression, but I didn't go with depression because you didn't um, say, you didn't mention A, B, and C. I considered trauma, but you didn't mention mm-hmm. A, B, and C. So that's why I settled on this diagnosis, right? Same thing with medical professionals, right? Oh, your diagnosis is uh, a muscle strain. Okay. Well, what else did you consider before you came up with the muscle strain, right? Have you looked at any lab work? Did you consider, you know, blood count or uh, if it could be a tendon issue? Like, I want to know what else you considered and why you ruled those other things out. And so when you make providers give you those kinds of details, (laughs) that for one, that puts us on an alert that, okay, this, this person is, I can't just tell them anything, right? This is an educated patient. And so it makes your provider uh, kind of be on their toes a little bit more because these are things that we should be doing anyway. And so if a patient's asking you those questions, we should be able to answer it. So similar to like what we mentioned about the progress note and having right to it, there's also that right to ask about your diagnosis. So if you feel Mm -hmm. like the provider is being skittish or they're talking around it and not wanting to share, you you have that right. Now, mm-hmm. particularly in managed care world or insurance, as you mentioned, there is your billing. So there's going to be some provisional diagnosis, provisional meaning that, yes, we haven't gotten all the information. This might be a 30, 60, 75, however many minute meeting. And there has to be something provisional and then you will continue over time and that may shift. Now, some people may do private practice kind of work that may be fee for service only. And depending on background and type of training, it may, there may be a difference, but for the most part in, in the psychology world, the psychologists, this is something that we often talk about and that patients have a right to know and to understand. So I'm mm-hmm. glad that you brought that up and different differential diagnoses, because as you said, there's non-specific symptoms, like a person right. not sleeping, particularly for us with, with psychology, sleep, that's right. a big one, right? Someone might not be sleeping because they're manic, which is more so right. bipolar disorder. Another person, it might be trauma. They're afraid to go to sleep because right. you know they have nightmares or they just don't feel safe. Something's going to be happening, going to happen to them. Some right. people may fall, initiate sleep, but then sleep is interrupted because of of nightmares. So there are so many reasons that could account for the sleep. So it may take time. So also recognizing that even if that is a process, that that is okay. Because it's better to be sure and to be conservative in diagnosis, because that's another part of 
uh, mental health disparities too, is that mm. people of color, particularly black people tend to be overdiagnosed. Yes. Yes. Can you speak to us a little bit about that? Yeah. More of the, you know, the heavier, um, overdiagnosing in terms of, um, schizophrenia or, uh, may just be depressed, uh, but not necessarily looking at those other things like post-traumatic stress disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. And so you may have an individual who may be overdiagnosed and overmedicated for something that may not require all of that, right? So how is it that I have depression, anxiety, PTSD, and, and bipolar, right? Like that's not even possible. Wow. I need you to explain <laughs> every symptom in every situation is a diagnosis, right? So we need to dial it back. Yes. <laughs> and, and I need you to explain to me how I can have this and this and this, right? And so what does that overlap mean? And I have seen that. And that is scary when you see that laundry. It's like, ooh, wait, wait a minute. We got to <laughs> right. bear some of that down. Or like when we query, you know, about mental illness in, in the family. Oh, well, my granny or my mom was bipolar and schizophrenic. So we know that. So some people may not know, but you can't be bipolar and schizophrenic now there might be schizoaffective or something disorder and it might be manic or or depressed type so it's Mm -hmm. really asking those questions as you said and understanding what's going on here is a constellation of symptoms that have to be met at a certain threshold to be diagnosed so those are also questions to be asking well how did you come to this final diagnosis can you explain to me or what call like a case conceptualization that's something you you can talk about with your therapist or your psychologist so so now everyone listening you know if you're shopping for a therapist go say I need that breakdown what's what's the case what's my case conceptualization how do you conceptualize what's going on with with me me. because I've had patients who've seen other therapists and they said the therapist would not talk to them about these type of things it happens all the time, you know, and, and that's why I say, listen, you know, and I may not be the psychologist for you and that's fine, but these are basic questions that anyone treating you and billing you should be able to answer. Differential diagnosis, what is my diagnosis and what is my treatment plan? That's the last one, right? So I need to know if we're starting at the beginning of the park, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Out of this long journey we take together, what's, you know, how do we get to the end? We can't just be in therapy forever talking about everything that happened the week before. That's, that's not <laughs> treatment. That is not therapy. <laughs> right. And you know, that's a misconception. I hear people too. Oh, therapists, psychologists, y'all just want our money. Y'all want us to keep coming to psychotherapy. Oh, and I tell Half the time, I said that is not the purpose of psychotherapy. Unless you have SMI, which is serious, severe mental illness, like, Mm -hmm. you know, schizophrenia, extreme types of bipolar or extreme chronic depression, you're not meant to be in psychotherapy forever. You go Mm -hmm. in, you figure out a diagnosis, you have a treatment plan, you work towards those goals, and you wrap up. Now, life happens, it's not static, so there might be booster, like if there's a Mm -hmm. loss, a death, you know, or Mm -hmm. some kind of change within your life, then it makes sense possibly to resume psychotherapy or the pandemic, right? Right. I oh, have yeah. many, many patients that that graduated in the sense that, you know, they met their treatment plan goals and we, you know, wrapped up psychotherapy, but the pandemic stress caused things to 
to shift. Yeah, yeah, it's been a it's been a tough year and a half for sure. So we we have about five minutes left. Uh, we've done a lot of great discussion on healthcare advocacy. Before we wrap up, I just like to have a little time for you to talk about your specific work that you do with diversity, equity, inclusion, advocacy. You've done a lot of great boots on the ground work, you know, during Ferguson time, as well as you continue to do that. Tell us a little bit about about that. Uh, well, I mean, you did such a great introduction. So. <laughs> I mean, I just, I I continue to remain an advocate in the community in terms of connecting people with mental health resources, um, sharing knowledge about what symptoms could look like, breaking down stigma. So doing work with faith-based organizations, um, youth organizations. So I just continue to work and volunteer time in those aspects. Um, As you mentioned, I do work uh, with veteran populations. Uh, so, you know, I just continue that work. You know, I continue to work with the Association of Black Psychologists. We do a lot of great advocacy and community work. And then also um, using opportunities and platforms like yours to be able to reach an audience to say, you know, these are some things that we can do to become our best informed selves so that we can hold other people accountable. So I do thank you for this platform. Thank you so much for being here. And before we wrap up, we talked a little bit about the pandemic and, you know, historical trauma, medical experimentation. So this is another opportunity to decrease stigma a bit. So if you had anything you would like to share with listeners, because they have some, they're still on the fence, they're undecided. We're not here to tell people what to do or not do, but what would you want to share in terms of those who might say they take a lot of vitamins and supplements so you know they're not comfortable with the vaccine what would you share in terms of just literature or education things that they can do okay so you know and this and this is just not me talking to people right like these are conversations I have with my family like today right yeah I, I vaccination I think the best way forward for us to get back to life how it was before COVID is for vaccinations. Um, And I don't make that statement lightly because I am one who chose an alternative schedule for my son when when he was born and it drove my pediatrician up a wall, but I had a plan and I had an explanation as to why, right? When people tell me they want to wait and see, my question is be able to define A, what you're waiting for, and B, what it is you want to see, right? Because you could be waiting and seeing 10 years from now, right? So maybe you want to, I've heard some people say, well, I want to wait for the full FDA approval. Okay, that's a date. Like, that's an obtainable date. Or I want to wait until this time next year to see. Okay, right? I mean, we, we need a timeline of some sort. Vitamins and minerals, we should be doing that anyway. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to, you know, catching a variant, it, I haven't seen it be effective against uh, dying from coronavirus. But if that's the choice some people choose to make, you know, I would say talk to people who you know who have had the vaccine, okay. ask them about their side effects. I would, you know, blackdoctors.org has been a great resource. Yeah. They have lots of publications from Black physicians and doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Black Docs Talk is a YouTube channel, I've been on their show before. It's all uh, Black doctors that 
talk about their experience from across the country. Um, one is an ER, emergency medicine doctor in Atlanta, Georgia. So I say talking to people who mm -hmm. you have had it um, and just having a real conversation with, if you were to catch it, what would that look like? And how would that impact your loved one? And if you can answer those questions and you're okay with that decision, then you're okay with that going forward. But that that's an individual decision. Okay. Something we can continue. Again, we'll definitely have to have you back because there's never enough time. So Thank we had you. a remarkably informative, empowering uh, conversation with Dr. Marvin Robinson. And we are certainly so thankful that you were here today on New Horizon Mind and Body Connection. Thank if you. people want to reach out to you, how can they contact you? Well, you know, I am on all of the main um, Twitter webs, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, I also have a uh, Facebook page, uh, Dr. Marva Robinson, where I do post different tips and things of how people can stay uh, mentally stable during the pandemic. Thank you. Once again, thank you, Dr. Robinson, for appearing on New Horizon Mind and Body Connection on Intentional Talk Radio Network. Join us second and fourth Sundays at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Our next show will be August 22nd. Thank you to our listeners across the globe. And for those who weren't able to catch us today, feel free to check us out on all the podcast platforms next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.